0: I mean, the first thing that came to mind is that computers aren't that simple. You're not like logging into a terminal when you're filing your unemployment claim. There's like lots of layers there. There's lots of places where this could fail. And I think what happened is, you know, he just got this COBOL thing stuck in his head. He's like, this thing seems really old. It's all broken. It's terrible. And that's our problem. And... It could have been anywhere in the stack. So I'm like, first of all, lots of companies are still using COBOL, and it's fine. And plus, there's just lots of places where this can break down. It could be the front end. It could be the connector between the two. It could be that they're using older technology, and they haven't modernized and used the tools that I've been talking about.
1: Hey, everybody. This week's episode is brought to you by Couchbase. Couchbase is an open-source, NoSQL document, and key-value-store database. It requires no external cache, supports SQL and analytic queries for JSON data, and Couchbase supports technologies like Kubernetes, Java, .NET, JavaScript, Go, and Python. Download it today at couchbase.com slash stackoverflow and let them know we sent you. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast. I'm Ben Popper, Director of Content, here with my wonderful co-hosts, Paul and Sarah. Say hi, everybody.
2: Hi, everybody.
1: Hi. Hello, you too. So we have some wonderful guests here with us this week. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. We've been talking a lot on the show about COBOL, and there's at least a dozen states, I think, now that I have read about who have old government systems that are currently being overwhelmed by a surge in demand for things like unemployment, and those COBOL systems are breaking down. Unfortunately, it's a quite an old language, and there's not a ton of people available to work on them. So we have JJ. Ashgar and Elizabeth Joseph joining us today to talk about what they've been doing with COBOL and integrating it with some more modern tooling, which is pretty cool. So hello to both of you. Why don't you kick it off and introduce yourselves?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Elizabeth K. Joseph. My background is in uh, like Linux systems administration, but I joined IBM last year to start working on IBM Z, which is their mainframe side of the company which was a huge switch for me. And of course, joining the mainframe side as a Linux person, I was immediately introduced to COBOL. I am so excited to talk
3: about this. This is like a whole world that I find fascinating. And none of it, I mean, I think you know, right? Like, I'm sorry, JJ should also introduce himself. Uh,
4: No worries. My name is JJ Asgar. I'm a developer advocate for the IBM Cloud. I play around in just the general Linux DevOps ecosystem. Before IBM, which I joined about two years ago, I worked at a place called Chef Software and I was really deep into the automation space. And when the natural progression between using automation into the Kubernetes ecosystem, believe it or not, thats a it's a pretty big jump. There's good best practices and things to come along with, but I got to make that jump and then I got to start experimenting and that's the reason why I'm on this podcast.
3: I mean, people can't see this at home, but Elizabeth has a big Linux penguin. <laughs> Hanging behind her in her house. Like this, this feels like a very familiar space. It feels like we can talk a lot about users and groups and Unix and everything that makes us feel safe and at home.
1: Paul, let them know about what you're doing for your apartment building. They don't know that you're the Linux Ubuntu hero for our times.
3: No, as the schools have gone remote, there's not enough in Brooklyn, there aren't enough laptops. I've been spending, I was spending a lot of time, there's less demand now, but people were pulling old Windows boxes out of their their closets, letting the updates run, and then the machines would just burst into flames because trying to get them. So, of course, I pop up and I'm like, well, you know, there is an operating system that could allow you to access these online resources, including uh, video conferencing, just fine. You know, maybe 10 kids are, are, have been able to get online. It's not a, not a huge effort. Okay, so wait, COBOL, here's what I think. I think blinking lights, someone pushing around a cart filled with punch cards, and then it moves forward to I'm um, processing millions of insurance forms with my db2 database in the background but only about seven people know, the opera, uh, know know how to how to program in Cobol. and yet you're both very sort of you know chef is a it's a huge automation platform you know elizabeth as i said behind you i'm seeing the peace love and unix poster on the wall connect these two worlds for me so that we can understand how it works
0: so I guess I'll jump in then. So one of the things that my my colleague Matt Cousins and I were working on the other day, just to give you a glimpse of the landscape we're working in right now, is uh, we were writing Cobol to parse JSON that came from a .NET front end. Mm.
3: Oh yeah. <laughs> wow, oh, wow. This is great. This is legacy and a half. Okay. So, okay. you know,
0: like like me maybe 2 years ago would think, "Oh, what a what a kludgy solution like putting all of these weird things together." But it turns out in this in this instance, like Cobol is doing what Cobol does really really well. It's parsing the records on the back end of the mainframe and pulling stuff in from JSON, and then .NET is like sitting up in the front there just like doing its front end thing. So, Cobol's the back end, .NET's the front end, and JSON on is how they talk to each other. So that was really interesting to me because that is like how we are tying these two technologies together in that particular instance. And that's what a lot of my work has been.
3: Can we talk for a second? Because this is an important point. You said what COBOL does well. And I spent a little time learning about and just trying to understand it, mostly because it was the butt of jokes. I'm like, what's going on here? And when you look inside of it, Things like the data definition sort of mini language built in and so on. You're like, I-, I wouldn't mind that in my JavaScript or my Java. So like, what when you say what it does well, what do you think?
0: I'm mostly talking about parsing and handling large amounts of data.
3: That I mean, that's a problem we all have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for
0: sure. And I, I don't know how, how many of your listeners have actually dug into COBOL code at, at all, but it's actually not that hard to read. You do have to understand some of the key concepts in order to write it. But at the end of the day, like if you are familiar with your data set, you can sort of figure out what the COBOL program is trying to do.
1: So I was saying this to Paul before the show. Is this an app metaphor in certain ways, which is like you could take the engine out of a Model T, put it in a modern car, and it would still make the car go, right? Like it can do certain things well that we still need, that cars have always needed. Maybe it's not great if you wanted to integrate some fancy electronic system for automated driving or whatever. But like you're saying, there are things it does well. And if you have something to make that talk to a more modern system, it can do the job as well as any other programming language.
0: Yeah, exactly. And one of the things the Open Mainframe project has been working on is writing a bunch of open source front ends to a lot of the, the mainframe technologies, which includes some of the COBOL tooling. We're we're writing like those translations layers to try to make sure that the COBOL is being interacted with in a way that that's like modern t- to developers. So there's like a VS Code plugin and there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's being worked on to make that easier. Because I said COBOL code is on the easy side, but understanding like the data sets and like the batch jobs and like all of the mainframey stuff, because it's not like a Linux box where you just dump files on it and things happen. A mainframe is built in a very different way. So like Getting your headspace around how a mainframe works is actually probably the harder part.
2: (laughs) Can you talk a little Mm. bit about that? I think that would be fascinating to our listeners. Can you talk a little bit about how a mainframe works?
0: So, I mean, sort of in this beginning space of mainframes, it is a big computer. It has memory and CPU and a bunch of I.O. cards and then the data or all the storage is, is off on a different system. So the mainframe itself is really just a giant computing machine. And so interacting with it is mostly talking to data. So you talk to data that is stored. It's kind you can sort of think of it as like in modern terms, like an object storage, because it's not really like a file system. So you know where your data is on the system, and then you directly go and find it. There's a lot of tools like... You, I mean, we're talking like, like green on black screens. Like people still mm-hmm. legit use that for mainframes. So the tooling that you use to interact with the data is all kind of old. But the Open Mainframe project is changing that. So there's lots of cool new clicky interfaces and whatnot. But really, that's you run jobs and you handle data and you send these commands to the mainframe. And that's how it works. You don't really log on to it. There is a Unix system shell now that you can log on to in a more like way we might be familiar with. But that's not really the core of the mainframe. That's been, an, that's been added on.
3: You know, when you're talking about lots of data, lots of processors, what's lots? Like, where do mainframes kind of start to shine compared to a couple desktop computers in a RAID array?
0: Right. Um, so I can get you the exact stats. Maybe we can put it in show notes or something. But the, the core of it is the processor. So the processor has 12 cores. On our high ends, they're, I think, 5.4 gigahertz each, which, you know, that's that's like on par with the industry standard of fastest CPUs out there. Right. But they have really big caches on the CPU. So there's these bunch of huge caches. And those are what allows us to load a bunch of data into both memory and, and the processor, and then process that data really, really fast. So if you're looking at data-intensive workflows, when you're comparing that to something like x86, the mainframe is going to be super, super fast when processing data because of those huge caches on the system. Another interesting thing about the the processor is that it has a crypto code processor in it. So it makes doing encryption really, really fast. So one of the things that a lot of the customers that we work with, they are, you know, banks and airlines and other companies that are doing a lot of data processing. And they want that to be encrypted. So we're able to do like end to end, we call it pervasive encryption that goes like you can encrypt everything in flight, everything on disk without really taking a performance penalty because it's all done in hardware.
2: Very cool. And so when (laughs) JJ and Elizabeth, when you hear that the governor of New Jersey is looking for COBOL heroes to come in and save the unemployment system in New Jersey. What do you think?
0: So I don't actually know about that particular instance, so okay. obviously, yeah. so because <laughs> yeah. I haven't worked with them. I'll, I'll let JJ jump in here too. Oh yeah,
4: no, I, I was gonna say the, the whole reason why I open sourced the COBOL and Kubernetes little experiment that I created was actually in response to what, what I saw. I saw a tweet about it. And I was like, I'd been working on this for months already, And just to give you a little bit of a picture of why this even even exists is the short of, I was challenged. I was trying to learn more deep Kubernetes thing. And in my mind, I was like, what is the most obscure thing I could think of, and it was actually (laughs) COBOL. (laughs) So I wanted to prove that any language could work properly on Kubernetes. And I just went down this science experiment to try to figure out how this all came together, and I learned a lot of stuff along the way. For a hybrid narrative, it is really, really, really valuable to, to show that you can do little bits and pieces in the new ecosystem absolutely fine. Granted the what I do show off on both Kubernetes and Red Hat OpenShift, there's a tweet going around of us discovering and learning how to do it the proper way, I'm using air quotes, on OpenShift with unprivileged containers, which by the way, was a really, really big challenge. To be able to actually have a COBOL application run and work like my whole ETL pipeline, which by the way, I had to learn what was in the process of doing this, where you compile, you take a bunch of lists of numbers, you run a little cobol application that adds 5 to that and then you output it somewhere else because in the big swath of things that's what most cobol applications are you take a bunch of data you do a bunch of da- do a bunch of dance with it you make the changes and then you shove it somewhere else and that's all i was trying to prove and it turns out it works pretty well so that's pretty cool huh
3: can we unpack a few few terms for the listeners right so Kubernetes is a vast subject. What is the the two-sentence description of Kubernetes and what is OpenShift? So
4: Kubernetes, in a, the shortest way of saying, is I give it a container or I give it an a, uh, the application and it will always run it somewhere. And it's a clustered thing where it can run on anything running from a laptop to bare metal in a data center. It is a way that you can run your application in a quote unquote, really bad term, but true cloud native way. It's a different way of thinking about running an application and it's become the de facto standard of how companies like Lyft, just massive corporations are starting to standardize because it's a unified control plane that Java, COBOL, Perl, Ruby, anything can run in a standard
3: way of doing it. Oh, but wait, wait, I want to know what OpenShift is. (laughs)
4: OpenShift is in the best terms that I understand as an engineer, right? I'm not gonna use any marketing terms. I'm not gonna use this stuff. This is how I understand it to be. Kubernetes is a very kind of, it's an engine, right? It's the engine to drive an application. Now, OpenShift is the car, which is the actual interface to the engine of the car, where your application is the people or the cargo, if you will, inside the car. It is a standard interface to Kubernetes to make your life just a little bit better. One of the best examples I have is back in the old Heroku days when you did Git push Heroku master and all of a sudden your
3: application was up on... Oh, oh yes, those ancient Heroku days.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I remember them well.
3: Yes, uh, yeah. I remember <laughs> Heroku. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but, but okay. Okay, wait, wait. <laughs> those old Heroku days, you do your Git push. Yes, and OpenShift
4: gives you that opportunity to do it on Kubernetes inside of your domain, so uh, and behind mm. your firewall, if you will, on your actual hardware. So you take that Heroku workflow with a bunch so it's of like really Heroku cool
3: at home. Yeah I wish I could have home. Heroku here. Okay, that's nice. I could I could install it on my QNAP. Yes. <laughs> okay, good, good. So, But we're very much in the world of like, I set up a container. It's a nice instance that has my application on it. I need it to run somewhere. And somewhere in 2020 could mean billions of machines absolutely everywhere on different clouds with different billing. And now I've got these nice systems in Kubernetes and then OpenShift that make that very complicated process that give be an interface to it.
4: So another beauty of Kubernetes in general, which is because the core Kubernetes ecosystem was supposed to be universal, where you were supposed to be able to take one container and ship it to AWS, GCP, Azure, and of course the IBM Cloud, just saying, you can use the IBM sure, Cloud. Sure, um, it's okay. But the, the challenge is, is because people start using external services, that, that, that dream slowly but surely got less and less right? Because people start using RDS for their backend for their storage Mm. or their, their database and things like that. So all of a sudden, yes, your core application can be shipped around, but over time, because people started leveraging other things, and that's how business works, right? You're like, hey, well, you don't need a database because we have this API that you can just start using MySQL. So... Of course, the core story is the same, but the challenge is, is when you actually go into production, you have to deal with external applications. I guess that makes mm-hmm. a sense. Does that make sense? Sure. Of course.
3: Of course.
2: Can I talk about what I see as the elephant in the room for a second?
3: No, Sarah. Sarah, <laughs> no. don't talk about the elephant in the room. <laughs> We're going to continue to just walk around that elephant and touch it until we figure mm-hmm. out what it is. Um, Great.
2: Okay. So, so some context here. Early in my career, I did a lot of ETL stuff and I actually did a lot of things that was, at the time, taking systems that were antiques. So for an example, one was, has anyone heard of a Wang database? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They were these huge machines. And by huge, probably for y'all, this isn't very huge because it could live in a closet. But there were these big machines called Wang machines, and they had their own screen for interface. So it itself, it was just a... Database with your black and green screen to interact with it. And you would buy it as a database for your business and you would use it just as a database, but The challenge was, this was in the 70s, the challenge was then in the early 2000s, people still had them with data on them and they needed to move that data to places where they could actually interact with it and, you know, throw away these machines that are taking so much space.
3: And and Wang sort of famously went out of business. Like it was a, a huge player. They word processors and stuff like that. And then it was gone, right?
2: Yeah. And then there's all these people with these huge machines with lots of data. And and so my, my job was for a long time transferring this data into what at the time was really modern technologies such as Microsoft Access, which I'm sure is someone's job now to move it from Access to something else. But so when I hear things like, uh, you know, we're using COBOL for these things, the first place, my mind jumps is why? And, you know, like, why aren't you moving it to Postgres? Why aren't we moving it to Mongo and and all the the fun data solutions that we have now? What I heard from you is because of the ability to hold lots of data, big cash, making, making those changes quickly. Does Cobalt really do that so much better than modern solutions? Or are these businesses and companies that just have been doing the same thing for a long time?
0: So that's a great question. So part of it is that COBOL is so these days, most of the shops using Cobol are using it inside of the mainframe. So it's very tightly tied to the hardware that it's running on. And that means it's deeply integrated with all the systems that it's running with. And as I said, like, it it does this really well. And I don't know, like, exactly if you'd, like, compare them, like, one-to-one, like, with Postgres. But the benefit is that, like, Postgres is not really integrated with the hardware that it's running on, right? So it can't take advantage of caches and, like, things in the CPU necessarily so directly. And so COBOL, it is faster for the most part. And if a company is modernizing their infrastructure and keeping up with the latest version of COBOL, that means that they're stuff is going to still run really fast. So COBOL, it's still a language that's being developed. Um, there's a bunch of flavors of it. So the one that I'm most familiar with these days, so there's GNU COBOL, mm-hmm. which is what JJ used in his Kubernetes demo. The one that IBM has is IBM Enterprise COBOL for ZOS.
3: Not not gonna lie, that is the most enterprise thing anyone has ever said on this program. <laughs> <laughs> IBM Enterprise COBOL for ZOS. But- not, I mean, I, literally everything in my life just went to green and black where I am. <laughs> (laughs) All I can see is like 80 by 24 (laughs) characters blinking.
0: So okay, okay, right. But COBOL is still like that version of COBOL. It's still released every two years. And we also have a continuously delivered version. So if you sign up, like if a company signs up for that, they get new features as soon as they land. So like there's new features coming down the pipeline every couple of months. And if you recompile your really old COBOL code using a modern COBOL compiler, it is orders Mm -hmm. of magnitude faster. Like if you look at these numbers, there's a there's a, a couple of blogs and podcasts I can point you guys to. But like some of the guys who are really deep down into this doing like the, the modernization efforts for these COBOLs, they're seeing like, like 95% faster with the modern COBOL compilers.
1: Mm. This is so interesting because like, Elizabeth, when we were, you know, sort of just reading the news and not talking <laughs> to people who are actually involved in this world as you are. The consensus is sort of like there's nobody out there who knows how to work with COBOL. Like it's only these, you know, like 70 and 80 year old people. There's just no one. But now you're saying, wait a minute, there's actually people working on this and modernizing it and finding ways to make it. So, like, there is a contingent of people who are, you know, not retired or, you know, on the way there who, who are working on this stuff. What does that workforce look like? Like, where are those people? Is that open source stuff? Is that fans? Or is that people within companies like IBM and others who just work on this stuff naturally?
0: So it's actually a really funny demographic. It's like the weirdest demographic I've ever seen in anywhere I've worked in tech. So you do have the older programmers who are retiring. My uncle actually was a COBOL programmer at IBM, like, a while ago. <laughs> he worked on the Y2K bug and all kinds of <laughs> stuff and then he retired. Smart guy. <laughs> and so you've got you've got that generation and then it kind of skips two generations like you know, Gen X and millennials, there's hardly any programmers, COBOL programmers in those two generations. And I'm technically a millennial. So like, I'm in that space of where there's not very many. And then there's a bunch of like 20 somethings who just graduated college who are super hyper into COBOL. Wow! So if you walk into a COBOL (laughs) shop today, you're going to see some old timers and you're going to see some really, really young people who are super excited about
3: it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's extremely Vaporwave. Like, it's really, if you're on Tumblr, yeah, it's so, all about COBOL, if, you know, when so, you were 19.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, so I think, like, I mean, having, like, stepped into this mainframe world from the Linux side, it is sort of like a hipster cool thing. Like, oh, mainframes mm-hmm. and COBOL and stuff. But actually, what happened is, for the most part, like, IBM and a lot of these companies who are we were partnered with, we realized that there was going to be this talent. Shortage, And we kind of realized, it seems like we realized a little bit too late (laughs) because people start retiring. We're like, oh Mm. no. So we launched a bunch of education initiatives. So Mm. we have master the mainframe, which is a a contest we run every year from September to December. Um, Last year we had 25,000 entrants and these are all college age kids. And so they learn the fundamentals of the mainframe, write a little code, and then it's a competition. So we have we give out a bunch of prizes. And then we're also working with universities to partner with them to get COBOL and, and mainframe technologies like more integrated with their, their courseware. So people are finally after COBOL was dropped, like you know, 10 or 20 years ago in most universities, we're working to bring it back because we're like, listen, there's still billions of lines of code of COBOL that's running every day. To make sure banks, banks, and airlines are still running. I am so excited
3: for that moment in (laughs) my career where, like, I'm like, you know, ten years (laughs) later from now, and I've got a 22 year old going, you don't know (laughs) Cobol. That's gonna be amazing. You know, there's there's something interesting that that. And just help me understand this, because you've talked about data as like an object layer or, or that there's a different perspective on data and that, you know, maybe some of the modern databases we take for granted in the open source world wouldn't really be able to take advantage of the mainframe. It feels like the boundary between data and database and language is more blurred in this world, but I'm not quite sure even what I'm asking, like, what is that perspective like? Is there just a SQL database sitting over somewhere? Or like, how, how are you getting things?
0: Right. So typically, the data is stored in a database. Historically, that's been DB2. But you can also run mm-hmm. like Oracle databases and things on the mainframe. So in some sense, it is kind of...
3: <laughs> you are both flavors. <laughs> sorry. Okay. <laughs> okay.
0: It, is, it is kind of like, you know, but DB2 is kind of the core of what the mainframe has as far as a database. But again, like, just it's the way you interact with it that was so foreign to me when I joined the team. I was used to just logging into systems or, you know, running a chef script against Mm. a system to get it set up. And it's just not that way in the mainframe world. I mean, there's obviously configuration because it still has an operating system. But it's just it's handled in a very different way, and then like data is king inside of these machines, which I'm I'm sure doesn't answer your question, but
3: (laughs) no, it gets me closer. I mean, you know, what's revealing is like no, it's the same stuff. It's just a different perspective, right? Like it's not it's computers, language make computer go and data go in database. Like we're we're in a we're in the same place that we usually would be. It's just that when you're looking at it from your point of view with big iron, where you're trying to Get hundreds of thousands of transactions done in as few milliseconds as possible. In but it's a very it's it's also interesting because that's the goal of a lot of scalable web programming too. But we keep abstracting that out to the cloud. And here it sounds like you're a little closer to that and dealing with it and watching your throughput and different. Yeah, ways.
0: and one of the things that was really interesting to me is like as a sysadmin, like when I was working on Linux systems, like I was like a sysadmin and kind of a DBA and kind of a network administrator, like, you know, you you get pulled into a lot of different things. But in the mainframe Mm -hmm. world, those are very separate roles. People have, like, only certain people have access to the data, and there's, like, a database admin, and there's, like, a system admin, and there's a system programmer. And those are very discrete jobs, and there's not a whole lot of overlap. And so, like, from that perspective, too, like, there's no full-stack mainframe developer.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's so interesting. Like, do you have to make that choice early? Like, this is this is going to be my focus.
0: No, I mean, you can you can learn and like transition between the, the, the systems, but it is going to be a very different job. I mean, I think once you understand the mainframe fundamentals, you can sort of be like, okay, this operator job seems like one that I want to do. But if you get sick of that, like, yeah, you can move to another one. We learn. <laughs> JJ, so you said that you
1: dove into COBOL like a year or two ago and you've been working on it and trying to integrate it with some more modern stuff. If somebody wanted to get started on this, if they wanted maybe to sort of try and help out with some of these states that are struggling, what path did you take? How did you learn this stuff? And what would you recommend to people?
4: That's a great question. A couple of years ago, or a year ago when I started this, it was very disparate. There was a lot of information all over the place. But IBM has recently created developer.ibm.com slash COBOL, right, Elizabeth? I don't actually remember the... I think it might be like components slash yeah. COBOL. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. um, Where we centralized a lot of good information to get your way started to learn generalized COBOL topics and things like that. There's a lot of good videos on there, including myself discovering in a very adult way how to get the stuff to work on COBOL. And then there's a handful of uh, Git repos that we have out there off of different namespaces that you can kind of just poke around to learn.
1: Cool. And Elizabeth, if people want to yeah, interact with this community, if they want to hang out with your dad on the COBOL <laughs> Cowboys mailing listserv or, you know, get in f- into some of these student competitions, what would you recommend?
0: So the, the the page that JJ mentions kind of our core for it but the Open Mainframe project it's a Linux Foundation project. They just launched a Cobol course which is also linked to that on the main page. But they also have a forum now where like Cobol folks have been been gathering because they put out a call after this whole New Jersey thing and they were like we need Cobol people and like overnight like 1200 people signed cool. up. So they exist and there's people there now. <laughs>
3: I mean, I'm poking around on this site right now as we're speaking. And first of all, you can get a IBM digital badge certifying you as a mainframe application programmer. (laughs) And that's the coolest thing. I want that on a coffee mug. I want that on a t-shirt. Lots of stuff about data definition. I just want to be here for a while and just get into some COBOL.
1: Yeah. Elizabeth, JJ, I'm I'm on Stack Overflow, and it says, is it possible to write a compiler in COBOL? I think the answer is yes, because I heard you talking about it before. But there's definitely, yeah, people poking around here. How do I uncompile compiled data? Is it possible to read SQL view in COBOL? People are trying to figure this stuff out. Data communication between COBOL and C.
3: Uh, here's a good one. Reading So there's a question just in a broad way, and this would be great to talk about. So reading COBOL data structures from Java, right? And it's the question is pretty much what you'd expect. But like COBOL Interop has come up a couple different ways mm-hmm. in this conversation. How, like, how does COBOL play with all the other languages and the other, other things that a computer can do?
0: So some of it is, is built into the language. I mentioned COBOL parsing JSON. That's actually part of the language these days. Mm-hmm. COBOL can also run in a JVM, and that's kind of how how you, typically you'd, you'd do some of the Java
3: connector stuff. Uh, so all the JVM languages it could interrupt with.
0: Yeah. All right, so it, <laughs> it
3: plays, it participates. It's not
0: old. We keep updating it. <laughs> <laughs>
3: And what about web interfaces? Always a question. Uh,
0: it's not really what COBOL does.
3: Okay. So I'm not <laughs> building I'm not building my new cool digital startup. No Instagrams are going to get built on COBOL. That's not the goal.
0: I mean maybe for sorting the photos on the back end.
3: Ah, <laughs> there we go. I mean there's billions yeah. and we need fast transaction yeah. speed.
0: See?
1: <laughs> All right. So I don't know if you two know this but every week on the podcast right before we sign off We read a few lifeboats. A lifeboat is a badge we give out on Stack Overflow if uh, a question has an answer score of 20 or more, and that came from negative three or less. So a question was consigned to the dustbin of history and then answered, upvoted, and now is a good piece of knowledge. So uh, awarded April 23rd to DJ EACH, convert Angular for application to desktop application using Electron. Thanks, DJ. Appreciate ya. All right. Great. Well, JJ, Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on the episode this week. We learned a ton. I think it's really encouraging. It sounds like there might be people young and old out there who can work with COBOL and COBOL is not as ancient as the mainstream media would have you believe. So thanks again for coming on.
3: I'm looking at an image right now, it is two extremely young people. One of them is holding a skateboard, and embossed on the skateboard is I Love Cobalt with oh, one of those badge badges. So,
1: Hello, fellow teenagers. <laughs> you sure? I am, That's not Steve Buscemi?
3: I am so into this in both a non-ironic and extremely ironic <laughs> way. This is, this is everything I love at once. Oh my God. I'm seriously going to go read hey, these tutorials. This I is good stuff. Will.
1: All right. I'm Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack
3: Overflow. You can find me at Ben Popper on Twitter. Thank you so much, friends. This was great. I'm Paul Ford. I'm the co-founder of a software firm called Postlight. You can check us out. You can check me out at F-Train on Twitter.
2: And I'm Sarah Chips. I'm the Director of Community here at Stack Overflow. You can check me out at SarahJChips at Twitter.com.
4: J.J. Asgar, uh, J-J-A-S-G-H-A-R on Twitter.
0: Yeah. And uh, again, Elizabeth K. Joseph, my website is princesslea.com, So I'm pretty easy to find. And then I'm plea 2 on Twitter.
3: <laughs> Damn, that is a good domain so great. name. You nailed it. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to have you back on to unpack that one <laughs> too. That is great.
1: <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll put a lot of this information in the show notes, great places to find and learn about COBOL. And yeah, hope everybody is well in these trying times and see you again next week.